So in the church, we have certain rhythms, seasons, if you will. Um, usually in the spring, we celebrate Easter, that great time in which we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Fifty days after that, we celebrate Pentecost, a time where we celebrate that the Spirit of God is with the church. We celebrate, obviously, very soon. What, what, what's the next great celebration in the church coming up? What's coming up? Christmas, that's right. Christmas in which we celebrate the birth of Christ. And that's such a big celebration for us. We actually have a, a whole leading up of Sundays called Advent where we're getting ready. And that will start next week. One of the parts of the seasonal calendar of the church is the very last Sunday of the church season. That happens to be today. It's the last Sunday in the church calendar year. And that Sunday, which is today, is known as Christ the King Sunday. It's the Sunday that if we follow all the other items that are in the seasons of the church in which we are called upon to celebrate, that Jesus Christ is King, that He's Lord. This is that Sunday. And there are several passages in the scriptures that lift up what it means that He is King. And today's passage that we're going to read is from the very end of chapter 25 of the Gospel of Matthew. But before I read that, I want to I frame it. I want to um, lift up the context or the larger picture in which our reading falls today. You see, chapter 24 and chapter 25 of the Gospel of Matthew are all about the end times. It's all about the coming back of Jesus Christ. There's a lot in these two chapters, but it all starts with the disciples remarking on the temple. They, they're looking at the temple in Jerusalem. It's like going to the big city and seeing all the big buildings. The temple was enormous. Just one of its stones would be as long as a pew and as high from that floor to here. It's massive, the temple mount upon which the temple sat. It was a massive structure. And the disciples were remarking on it. They were noticing it. They pointed it out to Jesus. And Jesus said, I tell you that not one stone will stand upon another eventually. Well, curiosity struck them. They wanted to know when, and that launched into a whole question about the end times. And the passage that we're about to read is the last of four separate vignettes, almost parables, of what that time will look like. One of them, it's one where Jesus explains that there's a, a faithful, what, what, what does a good faithful servant look like? When the master of the house leaves and puts that servant in charge of taking care of everyone else in the household, what will that servant do? Will that servant feed and take care of everyone? Or will that servant take that time to just do whatever that servant wants to do while the master's away? 
The next one image that's given is an image of um, there's about to be a wedding and there are 10 virgins that are set apart to go out and meet the bridegroom. We talked about this a few Sundays ago that there was this pattern when someone who was important was about to come into town, a delegation would be sent out to meet. And these 10 virgins were set apart to do that. And five of them were wise and five of them were foolish. Five of them that were foolish did not bring any oil for their lamps. And the bridegroom comes at midnight. And they struggle, don't have oil for their lamps. And they want to borrow from the five who do. And they say, we don't have enough. Go into town and buy it. So as they go into town to buy it, the bridegroom comes and they go away to the wedding feast. And when the five who were foolish come back, they can't get in. They knock and they bang and they can't get in. And they say, let us in. And the bridegroom says, I don't know who you are. The third image is what we often refer to as the parable of the talents, where the master takes his servants and says, I'm going away. I want you to take care of my resources. To one, he gives five talents. To another, he gives two talents. And to another, one talent. Now, a talent was an enormous volume of worth. Some would say that a talent could be equal to up to 20 years of labor. A lot of money. A lot of value. While the master's away, the one with the five makes five more. The one with two makes two more. And the one with the one instead buries it. He hides it. He protects it. He preserves it. When the master returns, the one with the five says, see, I made five more. And the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. The one with two made, see, master, I made two more. Well done, good and faithful servant. And the one with the one goes and gets it and says, I know that you reap where you didn't sow, O master. And so I was careful to preserve this for you. And that man is met with rejection because the master says, you should have at least put it away with the bankers for interest. In all three of the examples I've given you, the foolish servant who's not awake and ready when the master returns, he's cut to pieces. The five foolish virgins were left outside. The one with the one talent, even that's taken from him and he's cast into the darkness. Those three stories that Jesus gives come before what we're going to read now. And the question is on Christ the King Sunday, what kind of king is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? How does he describe himself? So listen now for the word of the Lord. May God bless this word to us. Almighty God, may you open it. May your spirit guide us. May we hear your words, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus said to them, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. 
And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king, the king, will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on the left, depart from you, me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So really, four passages for vignettes for parables that are similar in a number of ways they each have a return they each have uh, a kind of expectation a entrustment that is placed on those in the absence and they each have a result a return and entrusting and a result. The results in each is rather frightening for those who don't follow through on what's entrusted. In the first one, the servant is cut up into pieces. That's awful. In the second one, the five foolish virgins are not allowed in. They are on the outside, and even that on the outside, they are also denied being known. 
And then for that servant with the one, he is, what he has is taken from him and he's thrown into the darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then in what we just read, thrown into eternal punishment. The results. Each of them has a, res- a return. Each of them has a moment in which the person who is central returns. In the first story, the master returns. The master who puts in charge what, what, what is a worthful, uh, worthy servant. He puts a servant in charge and the question is not whether that servant will be worthy. The master returns. What will he find? Will that servant be worthy of the, what's been entrusted to him or not? In the second one, it's not a master who's returning. It's the bridegroom who's coming. There's this image of master, and then there's image of expectation of the bridegroom. I was at a family wedding just a little over a week ago, and all the excitement about that and, and, and waiting to see the bride and the bridegroom. In this time and this social structure, the, the expectation of the bridegroom, things are going to start when the bridegroom comes, much like we get excited and stand when the bride comes in. In the third image, we, we return back to that image of a master that's coming. So each of these images are reminding us someone important is coming. They're building in that anticipation of someone important. But in the one we read today, there's no, I wonder who that is. I don't, not sure about the image. This time the image is clear and to the point. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes. The Son of Man Now, that might be a little distant as far as image for us, but for Jesus' time when they heard that, they knew precisely who he was talking about. They knew exactly now who the master was, who the bridegroom was, who the master was, the son of man. And that image was one that they could immediately identify in the same way that we sometimes use images or or language for uh, someone of importance, uh, and we know who it references. If you say POTUS, P-O-T-U-S, the President of the United States, we know who we're talking about. If if you were to reference, uh, you know, the big guy, um, the, 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 the man at work, uh, that sense of the boss, the head, you know who you're talking about. The son of man was an image presented in the prophet Daniel. In chapter 7 of the prophet Daniel, it was a powerful image that every Hebrew carried in the heart of their chest the Son of Man. Because in chapter 7 of the prophet Daniel, there's this vision that's shared with the people. 
this vision that the ancient of days, that God would come into his throne room and all would gather around him and he would sit on his throne, the ancient of days, and this would be a time of tremendous judgment of the world. But before that takes place, there's another who shows up, one we are told who is like a son of man. So the Ancient of Days is seated on his throne, and we are told in this vision that another one shows up, and that other one who is like a son of man. And that that son of man, this image of this one, is given by the Ancient of Days, given all authority, all power, all dominion over the world. That that son of man will have a kingdom that will be without end. Once that son of man comes in to judge and be over all and have dominion over all, is all powerful. Once that son of man comes, that his dominion will reign without end. And so every Hebrew lived with an expectation in their heart of this one who is promised to come of this one who would come and be of the line of David, that, that his kingdom, as God promised to David, would never end, that this one would come. And they are waiting in expectation for this one. It's a, the Son of Man is another name for the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that God has promised. And so when Jesus says, he lifts up all these images of a master and a servant and, and then as a, of a bridegroom and, and the delegation committee of the ten virgins coming to bring him back and then, then a master and the servants again. And this time he doesn't veil any more of it. He says, when the Son of Man comes, and what he's saying is when the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one, when that one comes. And we get an image as he goes forward where Jesus calls the Son of Man the King. You see, this Son of Man, the image that Jesus gives, isn't just an allusion to, uh, to, to, to the prophet Daniel, but we get more information that the Son of Man comes. And hear what it says. In his glory, all the angels with him, he will then sit on his glorious throne. The ancients of days sat there. The Son of Man will come and sit on his glorious throne. All dominion, all power, all rule. This is the master, this is the bridegroom, the Son of Man. When he comes, the King, what will it be like? The master in the first one showed up and he found, he found his servant wanting, not doing what he was supposed to do, not caring for everybody else that had been left in his charge. He was entrusted. When the return comes, we turn now to the entrustment that is placed. 
the entrustment that is placed on us. In each of these four different vignettes, that entrustment gets less and less clear. And what I mean by that is this, the role that they are given from the first one to the one we read today shifts. In the first two, we can know what their role is right away by what's described about them. We can know that the servant was entrusted to take care of the household. That was his job. We can know the role, the entrustment that was to the 10 virgins. They were the delegation committee. We talked about that a few weeks ago, that this was a unique word to go out and meet the bridegroom. It was far more than meet. They were the delegation committee to go out. That was their job, to escort the bridegroom back to the wedding. That was their role. They need to just say that the the 10 virgins were to go out to meet and everyone who heard that from Jesus knew immediately the role and responsibility they had. Five of them were wise. Five were foolish. Why were they foolish? Because they didn't bring oil for their lamps. They didn't expect, they didn't expect to have to wait a long time. Just like the foolish servant before thought, hey, maybe if my master's away, I can do things what I want to do. These five are entrusted with bringing the bridegroom back, but they don't prepare for that. They haven't made the extra effort. They've hoped that he'll come back on their terms. And so they're not ready for a midnight appearance. The vignette before what we read today with the parable of the talents were a little less clear what the role of the servants is. One's given five talents, one's given two talents, and one's given one talent. But we're not told what they are to do with them. It's a little less clear. It's only upon the return that we get clarity on what the expectation was that they were entrusted with these talents, but that that entrustment had a certain assumption that they were to take what God had given them and they were to expand that. Imagine if the 12 disciples, living and walking with Jesus over those three years, imagine if after Jesus went, they said, wow, that was amazing, and then didn't tell anyone. Imagine the failed venture that would have been if they didn't go out and share what they had experienced. It's only on the return that we start to see what the expectation was, what the entrustment was. And so is true with our reading today. When the Son of Man comes, the King, He will come in all glory. The angels around him, he will sit on his glorious throne and then he will separate the peoples because all nations will be gathered before him. He will separate the peoples. How will he separate them? Well, it's kind of like they allude to like a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And I don't know, we're not very much, even though we're in a farming community, we don't do a lot with sheep and goats. 
and why you separate sheep and goats. Believe me, scholars have done a lot of work on this. And it's really not worth all the digging other than to notice that there's going to be a separation. That just like a shepherd will make separations and separate the flocks, that the Son of Man, the King, is going to come. And when he comes, he's going to separate the peoples. And then he will say to those on his right, to the righteous, well done. Welcome into the kingdom that's been prepared for you for long before. For when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you came to me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And here's the surprise. The righteous are surprised. When? When did we do this? When did we feed you? When did we give you something to drink? When did we welcome you in? When did we clothe you? When did we visit you? When did we come to you? And this passage is very poignant in that four separate times it goes through that list of being hungry, of being thirsty, of being a stranger, of being naked, of being sick, of being in prison. Four times it goes through that list, emphasizing. You say something over and over again. How many of us have to tell our children the same thing multiple times? And why do we do that? Why do we repeat ourselves? Why do we even go to the length to say, I told you, Why do we do that? Because we're saying what we said matters. Some of you parents even now are looking at each other. I told you. Hitting home the point. And here is the real surprise. Jesus says, When did you do that? Whenever you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. What kind of king do we have? A king who identifies with the person in want with the person who is lacking, with the person who is struggling. That's who our king is. All dominion, all power, all glory, everything sitting on the throne, and yet this king is concerned about the least of these, my brothers. Now, I'll let you in on a little sidebar. Maybe I'll go over to this side just so you know it's a little sidebar. 
over the last century plus, give or take a few decades. Most biblical witness has understood the least of these to be those who are hungry, those who are thirsty, those who are strangers and, and are naked and sick and in prison. In other words, we have taken those words very literally and we've said that the poor, the least of these, that Jesus is with the poor. And whenever we take care of the poor, those who are struggling and those who are lacking, we're taking care of him. That is a proper and good interpretation. Because it fits what we know of our Lord. It fits what we know of him when he even said to his disciples, that, hey, I came not to heal the well. I came to those who are sick. I'm like a doctor coming to those who are sick. It fits all the many places we see Jesus go. He goes to the woman at the well. He goes to all those who are buried in sin and suffering and struggling. It fits. But that's just been the last century plus. The majority of the time from Jesus sharing with the disciples up to about a century and a half ago, the interpretation of this has largely been the least of these my brothers. And because the my brothers reference every other time refers to the disciples, the interpretation has largely been about, hey, look, now that I've sent out my disciples and they're going to struggle, they're going to be hungry, they're going to be thirsty as they go to share the good news. They're going to be a stranger in towns. They're going to be at times without Clothing, they're going to be naked. Now, the naked there is the fact that they're lacking an additional cloak, that, you know, things have worn out. They're going to be at times sick from all the traveling. How many of us do holiday traveling and come back sick? And they're going to be thrown in prison. And how you as communities welcome those who are carrying God's word, how beautiful are the feet of those on the mountain to bring good news. So it's been understood as that this references those, if, you know, the separation has to do with, did you welcome the good news brought to you, the good news of Jesus Christ? Also, a very reasonable and good interpretation. Whether we're talking about the least as the lowest, the poor, those who lack, those who don't have, or whether we're talking about, in particular, the disciples and those who share the good news of Jesus Christ and all the suffering they go through, and whether or not they're welcomed, both are good interpretations, and both still tell us something about the king. That the king of glory, the king of all dominion, all power, everything that is under him, the one for whom Paul says in his letter to Philippians that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord, whether or not you believed it before or after, everyone will. That one who has all glory is concerned about the least. Concerned about how we treated those with this message. Did we welcome it? 
Because that's where he is. Like the general who was on the front lines. Or the CEO who comes and helps do the cleaning with the cleaning staff and knows every one of their names. That's who our king is. Our king carries about each and every one because his gospel, his good news, is completely wrapped up in his love for all people such that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Such that those who even at that point reject or are unwilling and unable to prepare for the reality that our God loves us that much, at that point, what more can he do? You didn't clothe. You didn't feed, you didn't offer drink, you didn't visit when in prison or sick. You didn't welcome as a stranger. At that point, you've rejected him and rejected everything that he's about. And so you're separated. The king of glory the king of all, the one who we crown with many crowns. He is worthy of all our praise, all our love, because he cares for the least of these. And his gospel message is of incredible worth, that he cares about every moment in which it's shared. Today, as we wrap up our year of faith following Jesus, as we get ready next week for a whole new year of church life, may we remember who our King is, how worthy He is of all glory, and how deeply He loves us and the depths to which He goes. May God be praised through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, may we truly honor you. May we lift you up, O oh Jesus, as great and eternal King, the one who's been given all dominion. And may we recognize your love, your deep and abiding love for each of us, the depths to which you've gone, the cross upon which you've hung, all so that we might know of your love. Help us, O oh Lord. Help us to be busy caring, caring for those you've left us in charge of, those you've entrusted us to. Help us to be eager and ready in our preparation for your return, to do all that is necessary. Help us, O oh Lord, to take that which you've given us and to return it to you, not just what it is, but to build on it as you would have us build on it. So that, O oh Lord, when we come to that day, we might willingly say and see how much we've loved you.
in return of the love that you've given us. Through Jesus Christ, amen. Adored and magnified. Adored, giving thanks and great praise every day. And magnified the task he's placed on each of us to express his love to all whom we meet. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be yours this day and forevermore. Amen.